Good evening, everyone. Welcome. So we're discussing the Dhammadar Astakam, eight prayers describing Dhammadar, which in which the name Dhammadar is mentioned here in the second verse that we are discussing. Astaka means eight, so eight, Astaka means eight, eight verses, eight verses about Damodar, <laughs> Damodar Astaka. This is an ancient Sanskrit uh, prayer and um, relevant to our tradition of bhakti or devotion to Krishna and Damodar. It's one of the names for Krishna. We have a, have a task this evening of trying to speak to those who are more informed about the tradition and acquainted with the terminology than those some who are less informed and aware. So bear with me. Um, and too high for some, too low for others. Everyone, a little patience on everyone's part would be um, appropriate. So... So Damodar is a name for Krishna. Of course, Krishna is a name for, for the what we might call God uh, in Western um, terminology, or the uh, the source of life. We think that the source of life is is alive, not dead. So we don't think that life, as we know it, comes out of matter. There's a question in science, one of a number of questions that are unanswered. And one of the leading ones, if not the most leading, the, the top one on the list, the least answered, <laughs> is that what is the biological um, basis of consciousness? What is the biological basis of consciousness? So they, the main place they're looking for that is, of course, within the brain. <clears throat> but our position in the position of uh, the Eastern schools of thought for centuries which is still pertinent, uh, relevant in today's world, um, is that the question is, is starts with a biased premise, because the answer could very well be there is no biological basis to consciousness. So there's an assumption built into the question that uh, everything is biological, which is reduced to chemical, which is reduced to physical, and that's what existence is. And there, of course, and there's nothing beyond that, um, if you will. So they're having a hard time answering that question. And our reason, explanation for the difficulty is that it's not, uh, consciousness is not biologically based, and life is not uh, a biological. There is a biological manifestation of life. Mm-hmm. But life transcends biology, so life is consciousness. We are units of consciousness. It's the only thing we really know, our own consciousness. We don't know if anybody else has it, but we, we, we suspect that they do. Huh. And in one sense, this is what, as I see it, what life is about. What's out there and who's asking the question? What's out? In other words, what's in there? What's in here and what's out there? 
This is what life is about as far as why questions go. What's going on? Why am I? So what is the meaning of life? So what's out there? What's experienced? And what's experiencing it? And these are two dramatically different <coughs> positions. Something that is exclusively experienced and doesn't hold within itself the power of experience and that which is experiential. They're very different. And it's not very reasonable to think that experience comes out of non-experience. That doesn't make sense, does it? That experience would come out of non-experience. This is the modern, prominent thinking in the... Um, in the scientific community that's influenced by the metaphysical perspective known as materialism. <laughs> so, um, we and the ancient schools of Eastern thought, of ours of which is one, um, maintain the idea that, um, that there's a difference between the, there's experiential reality and there's non-experiential reality or a reality that's experienced, like dull matter is experienced, and we are uh, experiencers. And so, as such, we could be considered superior to matter, and that we it matters because of us. We give meaning to matter. We arrange it in different ways, and we call it different things, and we take the basic ingredients of matter and put it together in a certain way and call it a house. It's, it's really, where is the house? Where is the rock? These are ideas, really, hmm? that have their uh, basis in, in, in consciousness. Now, there is a world of matter, but as I say, it's given meaning, purpose, form, shape, and so forth by consciousness. So, in a sense, we could say that consciousness is is superior to matter. An experiential reality is superior to the experienced reality. Hmm? At the same time, we do find ourselves sometimes overwhelmed by matter. Hmm? And... Um, And so then the question arises, well, are we superior to matter? Hmm? Um, it appears, for example, that, that when matter moves in a certain way, consciousness no longer exists. So it would appear that we are, maybe matter is superior to consciousness. But from our perspective, that would be like unscrewing the light bulb and thinking that electricity no longer exists. Um, but on another level, outside of death, we find ourselves, although as we're philosophizing here, superior to matter, subject to transformations of matter that, that are tr tr problematic to us, whether it be natural disasters like recent hurricane, um, or it be troubles that we encounter in relation to other, other beings, or troubles that we encounter from our own senses, one of which might re or push us in one direction and another in the opposite direction at the same time. 
the tongue may drive us to taste and the stomach may resist and we're in a pro- it's problematic. So these senses through which we experience life and so forth, they're competing, so to speak, with one another, driving us up often, as I say, in opposite directions. So problems from our own bodies and minds, hmm? problems from the, from others and from natural disturbances and so forth. And so there's this uh, there's kind of a competing ideas here that consciousness is a spirit of matter and that sometimes matter seems to overwhelm consciousness. So the way that we resolve that philosophically in our tradition is that we see that we are a unit of consciousness and as such we might be compared to a spark of the fire. Now the spark is like the fire, but it's also at the very same time different from the fire. Because you cannot cook with a spark, you cannot heat your house with a spark. but you could burn your house down with a fire and cook a feast, right? So they're one and they're different at the same time. We play this analogy out a little further and we make our source the fire. We are the spark. And there are a couple other things that fire contains, like smoke. Smoke comes from fire, right? And where there's smoke, there's fire. So. So in this analogy, then fire is the Godhead, our consciousness source. Hmm? We are the spark, and smoke is matter that obscures sometimes the spark's own effulgence hmm? and its connection with the fire, its source. Now there's another aspect of fire, heat and light. Hmm? Heat and light are that like the energies of fire hmm? that cause it to be um, warming and illuminating. Hmm? So in the presence of, cons- of considerable heat and light, the smoke of the fire, the smoke cannot prevail. Hmm? So the spark can come under the influence of the heat and the light, the, sp- the smoke can be dissipated it can unite with its source and owing to the heat it can feel, it can love. Hmm? And with the light it can it can know. Know that there's a kind of knowing that answers all questions and, and renders other things n- not answered, details not worth knowing. Hmm? Hmm. So there's a kind of knowing perfect knowing by which you become perfectly happy and it involves in this analogy coming out of the smoke by the influence of the heat and the light and uniting with the fire. So the heat and the light is what we call bhakti, a kind of a wise uh, love, a love that arises out of this type of thinking and so forth and thus is in relation to our source rather than just an appearance of a person or a thing, which is, which are all of which are here today and gone tomorrow. We, as a unit of consciousness, in our story, not being dependent upon a biological arrangement, hmm? not being a product of the brain, but being uh, ontologically different than the brain, is not contained by time and space. So it has no beginning, 
it has no end. We're experiencing ourselves now as if we're limited by time and space due to our identification with the smoke, with matter, in which all things are here today and gone tomorrow. But we are the ones that are observing the fact that things come and go. Hmm? And we're observing that. And as such, the change or the transformation of the coming and going, we're not part of, and that's why we can understand it. And that's why we have some inborn kind of resistance to the impermanence that seems to pervade the world. There's an impermanence, and we have a resistance to it. And the idea is because we are not of the same nature. Hmm? And uh, and if you are, of course, part of a change, then it, it's difficult to observe it. Hmm? It's like if I see you, and I'm like, well, you sure have grown up a lot. You, know, you, you feel like you're pretty much the same. And, yeah, you know, you see a kid, kids, somebody's kids, ten years later, and gosh, you're twelve years old now, and they they don't perceive the change in this. I mean, if they look in the mirror enough, they get some of that stuff to put on for wrinkles and things. I've been seeing advertisements for that lately, but uh, <laughs> but um, when you're separate from the change, then it's it's easy to observe that. So it's easy for us to observe the change and. The implication is roughly that we're not part of the change. Hmm? So we're independent of matter, and um, at the same time, the particular configuration of matter that we've identified with a body-mind complex kind of shapes our ability to express ourselves as units of consciousness. So there are different forms of life it might be compared to different vehicles. Like if you've got Volkswagens, you've got Cadillacs, you've got BMWs and Rolls Royces. So these are like the different bodies, like insects, animals, plants, humans. And consciousness is driving all of these um, complexes, hmm? all these cars, if you will. But the car itself is shaping the ability of consciousness to express itself in this particular realm. Just like if you drive a Volkswagen and I drive a BMW, we both can put our foot on the pedal and press it all the way down, but I'm going to go faster than you are because my car is, is a different kind of vehicle. So I have the ability to express speed you know, differently than, than, than you do. But if you were to get in the Cadillac, you could do this, or the BMW, whatever, you could do the same thing. So now recently in modern science, in biology, they found that Insects have egos. It's like this is uh, these are. There's a number of findings like this that are leading the community, scientific community, to to deal with a perspective that was thought to be absolutely absurd just a decade ago. Um, that being panpsychism, or the idea that consciousness is everywhere, hmm? underlies everything. This is a very old idea, of course from our tradition from thousands of years ago. Um, um, but now they're, even the research with animals and so forth, they're finding that uh, gorillas, uh, you know, can read people's minds to some extent, can understand by looking at them what, what you know, on a small, lower level they're going to they're gonna do in ways that we only thought that humans could and so forth, and so or they thought. <laughs> so... Uh, this is moving in a, like a panpsychic uh, direction. Uh, there might be materialistic forms of panpsychism that they would try to embrace first and so forth, but um, um, we feel 
that modern science was born as a Christian in Europe. Newton, Descartes, and so forth. These people felt that with with this with the scientific experiment, which is a very overglorified thing, because we all do it. I mean, you touch fire, you get the data that you're burnt. With one finger, you think, well, I'll touch it with two. See what happens. You know, you, you get the same data, and then you decide, I'm not going to touch fire. I've got to, something like that. So that's basically uh, science. But if you hone that kind of experimentation, and you you quad, quadrant off some aspect of, of the world and examine it very closely and derive data from it, you can get certain information about how what's out there works, so to speak. And you can derive pragmatic results from it that are often thought to improve human life. We'll see about some of those things, whether they're improvements in, in the long run or not. But... Um, some, some, some of them are certainly, obviously, um, but this tool, if you will, in the hands of the early uh, um, Christians at the, at the at the dawn of the scientific revelation was or scientific uh, revolution was thought to be um, the, the 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 tool by which the Christians would prove the existence of God, natural theology. Hmm. But as time went on, then science from being born a Christian started to become a agnostic, and now it's become an atheist. And it, although this arose within the context of Christianity, modern science has become the greatest nemesis for for religion in the world, at least the way some people think about it. Now our perspective is from being born as a Christian, if you will, of course, there was it was also science in in in, in the Middle East, and so let's say born as a as a as a basic like a fundamentalist religious person <laughs> uh, became agnostic, become atheistic, but to live on, you have to become a mystic. Because mysticism is where where there is this objective pursuit of the absolute, and it may be by different methods, but it's acknowledged that there is a there is an objective kind of pursuit for it and a subjective pursuit uh, uh, for it. And, um, and and so there's kind of a meeting between mysticism and uh, and modern science um, as we see it. And um, and, it, and the conclusion is that, uh, well, in a, in a very broad sense, that there's matter, there's mind, which is a psychic form of matter, and then there's there's consciousness, which is different from psychic and physical matter. We are constituted of that consciousness. We've identified with matter and are participating in some type of a virtual reality of sorts, identifying with the changes and transformations of matter, even though we're sitting in the chair here and, and it's not really affecting us because we're not, again, chemical. We're not physical. We're not biological. Hmm? We're consciousness, which isn't a thing, which isn't a thought. It's it just is, hmm? and we have a problem in that we are only a tiny spark of this consciousness, hmm? and so in the face of the vastness of the of, of matter, we can of the smoke we can get lost, so to speak. So the goal then is to connect with our source, hmm? and in in our tradition the source is called Krishna. <laughs> Long way around to get to that point, and. 
Krishna is one of the names of the source. It means all attractive. Hmm? All attractive. Um, irresistible, um, if we look at it etymologically. Um, and so, that said, um, as it's true in most traditions, the Godhead or the source has different names, like Almighty, All-Powerful, Infinite, in Sanskrit, Paramatma, Brahman, Bhagavan. When we go to names like Krishna, or the name here, Damodar, we're going into a very interesting realm, because the names I've said, like All-Powerful One, Almighty One, the infinite. These are very kind of broad terms. And it's difficult to love the infinite, the all-powerful, the omniscient, the all-pervading. It's like, you know, how do you talk to the Wizard of Oz? You've got to pull a curtain and say, oh, it's you. <laughs> okay. You know, otherwise it's Oz. And, you know, you're just standing back like, like this. So, so what... What our tradition seeks to do is to pull the curtain, okay, and look at omnipresence, omniscience, um, and so forth as being aspects of the divinity that inspire reverential type of love and create both a distance from illusion or let's say a distance from illusion in the context of a kind of a sacred difference between the source and ourself. Because if we knew we were sitting next to God, we'd say, oh my God, and we might like move back a little bit and we would fold our hands. And so you see many, many religious traditions like this that more or less advocate this type of reverential love, whereas the types of love that we're more familiar with that take precedent over reverential love, like love of your wife, Love of your, 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 your husband, your children, your friends, and so forth. They usually take precedence over church, um, in most people's, people's lives. And people go to church, even young guys look for girls, and probably girls look for guys at early ages too. It happens. So, this, uh, the power of intimate love in human society often overrides the power of godly love, and that's thought to be a problem. Hmm. But obviously this intimate love has great power and it's very compelling. So the question is, could we have intimate love with the source rather than just this reverential love where God becomes the friend, God becomes the lover, God becomes loved as much as we love our kids. And then those of you who have kids, um, if they're not out of the house yet um, and whatnot, you know, your life kind of revolves around them. It's like they're never not on your mind, so to speak. Either you know you want to know where they are, or you want to know why they're there. <laughs> and so, uh, so, the, so the intensity of that kind of love, or the intensity of, of romantic love, or the intensity of friendly love, if you could have that kind of intensity of love for the deity, that'd be a very power. If you could, that'd be a very powerful. Um, relationship with the divine that would really cause the smoke of illusion to just dissipate into the into into the background so this is an interesting like 
realm uh, within transcendence, the idea of like pulling the curtain behind the omniscient. And as I said before, omniscience sounds like a good thing. It would be nice to know everything. Omnipresent sounds like a good thing. It would be nice to be everywhere. But the problem with it is there would be nowhere to go. And if you know everything, there'd be nothing to do because you already know everything, what's going to happen. So it's thinking more deeply about it, omniscience and omnipresence becomes a problem for the Godhead. It's rather boring. Hmm. And so what do you do when you're bored? Then you play. Hmm. So there's this term in Sanskrit called lila, which means play, divine play, where the Godhead plays. Hmm. And to play means he has to play with somebody, so to play with uh, with his devotees in a in a drama, I mean play like a drama also, in a drama where the infinite takes on a finite-like appearance in order to get close to the finite. Hmm? And his infiniteness is obscured for the sake of intimacy in love. Hmm? And this is thought to be a greater kind of knowing, if you will, than omniscience. So in love, for example, there's a kind of knowing that is perfect, even as it it doesn't know many things, but it doesn't care to know many things. They're not they're of no consequence. Hmm? So this is the kind of idea. So this is the realm that this song is talking about. <laughs> to give a, a brief introduction, and um, it invokes the name Damodar, Damodar, a name for God, and the name is a name that is depicting the Godhead in this, what we call Leela. Leela is a kind of movement, play, I said. There's other kind of movement called work, right? We both have experience, we all have experience of, of both, work and play. Work is something you have to do. It's kind of obligatory. You owe, so off to work you go. Play, on the other hand, is, is arising out of out of power rather than work arising out of a need for power. I need to work, I need to do something that I may protect myself, that I may secure my position, um, that I may meet my wants, my needs. Hmm? If you have no needs, why work, right? Hmm? If you have no needs, then why work? So work is obligatory in this sense. And Leela, we call that karma. Hmm? If we invest in matter, then we incur a debt, a reaction. If we take from the world, then we owe. And in order to maintain this sense of identity, this body-mind complex, I am North Carolinan, you know, I'm a woman, I'm a man, these are just ideas that have nothing to do with the fact that we're consciousness, actually. Just a passing thing, a dress that we're in at the moment. But if we're invested in that, and that's all we know, then obviously we need to protect it, take care of it, gratify it, and so on and so forth. And to do that, we take from the material environment. But when you take, you owe. Hmm. So this karmic kind of implication is a life where there's movement, and it's movement that I've taken, now I owe, so I'm in debt, and... and it's like being a negative number or something like that. It's not a good position to be in. 
Hmm. Some traditions posit, let's come to zero and clear the debt. And zero is positive in relation to negative numbers. But what we're talking about here is beyond zero, positive numbers. It's a very obscure kind of idea. Hmm. Um, so the point being, positive numbers look like negative numbers. It's a one, it's a one, it's a two, it's a two. It's just a small little plus or a minus in front of them that makes a, a world of difference, right? So Leela looks like karma. So the depictions of the Godhead in Leela looks like he has a shape, form that's limited by time and space. And that these are meditative experiences that sages try to to explain to us through art, through philosophy, through song and poetry, and so on and so forth. But in the translation, it starts to kind of look like like us. But there's a difference. There's plus there, and there's a minus in our karmic involvement. In one, the minus negative numbers, again, are work. They're obligatory because we're they're arising out of a perceived necessity that if I don't do it, I'm going to have a problem. Hmm? Play, within our own experience, on the other hand, is arises out of fullness. Hmm? So if you're really full, you might say, you have no wants, why move? Well, you could have a party <laughs> and just celebrate your, your fullness. You know, you feel so happy that you, you, you want to dance, something like that. So Leela is something like that, hmm? that the movement of the Godhead, if the Godhead is really full, hmm? Then it must be dancing as Nietzsche. Nietzsche? Nietzsche said, if there's a god, he must be a dancer. So we're introducing the dancer here in this, this song. He's being introduced. Hmm? Um, and so this is a song about this idea of Leela. Hmm? Um, the idea again is Leela is movement out of power. So just to use a material example, if you want to have a vacation, which would be to play, you have to have some power, right? You have to have some money in the bank, you have to have, to have time, have some time with the company, they will give you time off, and so forth. So the Godhead, when depicted as all-powerful, will rightfully be depicted as all-playful. Hmm? Whereas when the Godhead is depicted as all-powerful, but having to weigh in on something, make a decision, correct people. This is a lower idea of the Godhead. Has some work to do in relation to the to the world and so forth. Hmm? Um, there was a German, uh, one of the teachers in our tradition went to Europe many years ago for the first time from India. And when in Germany he was invited to a, a, a theistic drama, Christian drama, and in the drama there was the main stage, and in the balcony there was God. And so during the course of the drama, every now and then the God would say, I bless you. The curtain would close behind the, you know, the balcony. Then it would open. I don't bless you, I condemn you, or something like that. And he just weighed in every now and then. So after the drama, he was asked, the sage was asked from our tradition, what did you think of the drama? He said, it was very nice, I liked it a lot. The difference, he said, between your theistic perspective and ours is that you have God in the balcony and the main stage is down here, but in our tradition, God's on the main stage. Hmm? So that's a, quite a difference. In other words, the Godhead is not just sitting on a cloud and he's, he's got some score to keep for everybody. He has nothing to do. He's only playing, and you can enter into that realm 
and love God intimately beyond love in awe and reverence. So you can enter into the Leela, hmm, is the idea, the play of God. And this song is about doing that. And it talks about a particular Leela of the Godhead Christian, who in this song is named Damodar. So Damo means ropes, and Udara means belly. It's a pretty funny name for God, rope belly. <laughs> But uh, what it's about is, as we'll see, um, um, the, in the context of the play, binding the binding of Krishna around the stomach with a rope. So it's complex, obviously. We'll go, we'll go into it a little bit here. It says, Muhushashvakampatire kankakantas, titagraeva damodaram bhakti badam. So in the Leela, this is a, now an aspect that we haven't brought out yet that, that is important. What happened was, so <laughs> you have, in the Leela you have different types of love. You have parental love, those who feel like they are well-wishers of God. Hmm? Those who feel like they're equals, friends of God. Those who feel in a romantic relationship with God. Hmm? Again, these are powerful forms of love in this world. So here they're, they're God-centered. And so now there's a drama. And Krishna's the perfect son, and some people are the well have that sentiment as well-wishers. Some people are like friends wrestling with him or whatever. And some are like, like, like lovers and so forth. So this one is about his mother, one in a, with mother, someone with motherly affection. Obviously, God's not born, so this is a play. Mm-hmm. But they're pl- the best part about acting, if you will, in a drama is how much the actors and the actresses can actually enter into the role. Mm-hmm. So when God plays, he plays really good. So God is actually thinking and feeling, I am the son of Yashoda, who's the name of his mother here. Mm-hmm. I am the son. It's a very... It's very uh, so. His omniscience has has receded to the background, hmm? and the love of the devotee, who so intensely loves him, just try to imagine, loves him like you love your son, as much as your son, for example, as I gave him, er, spoke earlier, your your life can very much revolve around him. Hmm? I mean, who thinks about God like that? So, so it's a very intense idea. And that kind of intensity of love of God makes it possible for this type of union and experience of Leela with the Godhead. So Yashoda is having this experience. She feels that God is her son, and, and she has given herself so selflessly to God that he actually has become like a son. Hmm? And so, like a son, he has all the, the human characteristics, human-like. So he's human-like. It's the like is important. So... In, hu- in the human realm, this is the best place for love hmm? in human society. Ah, it's a fallen condition. We fall in love. So, <laughs> so this, is, this story is about God falling in love, in this case, falling in love with his mother in an appropriate sense, not romantically. But, um, uh, so... so um, he has, he's very young at this time in the Leela, and he has, 
um, uh, is upset with his mother because she was nursing him, and then the milk on the stove that was boiling, which was special milk gathered from special cows on special grasses, just to make milk products at home that would keep her son from going out and causing mischief in the neighborhood and stealing milk from products and butter and sweets from other families and so forth, other ladies who complained about it, although they were in ecstasy in their part of the drama too. So the mother of Krishna came home and complained to her husband, what kind of cowherder are you? Your, your milk from your cows is not keeping our son at home. They were cowherd people, so their main livelihood was, was taking care of cows. And, uh, and dealing with uh, the trade with milk products and so forth. So they got special cows and put them on special grasses. And, and um, so she was boiling that milk and then nursing her son. And then the milk started to boil over. So she put her son down and went to tend to the milk. In the context of tending for the milk, he became upset and because he wasn't getting full attention. <laughs> and then he, he, he broke a pot of, of butter it was hanging from the rafter by standing on a, on a mortar that was used for churning butter, got up there, broke the pot, and was distributing butter to the monkeys. In Vrindavan in India, a place where uh, uh, central to Krishna Bhakti, they had lots and lots of monkeys there. So he was distributing to the monkeys and, and, and causing mischief and breaking the butter pots and so on. And his mother apprehended him, and he became apprehensive that she was going to chastise him and so forth. So she grabbed a stick to chase after him and put it underneath her her, her sari, her dress. And so he's depicted here, it's very charming, um, crying and rubbing his eyes and tears pouring out, trying to avoid any punishment. And of course, she she's isn't really going to hit him, but she's very, very charmed by him. But she starts to be worried that maybe he's going to run away. And so she, she sits, decides to tie him up. Hmm. So she grabs him, she puts the stick down, and she goes to tie him up. And what does she do? How will she tie him? She wants to tie him to the, the, um, the mortar, hmm? wooden mortar. So she, she pulls a ribbon from her hair hmm? and then tries to put it around his belly Right and tie him to the mortar. Now, Krishna's resisting this because he thinks, I'm not going to be tied up. I've got things to do. I've got to go, you know, play with the calves. I've got friends to hang out with and so forth. And so he has certain shaktis, powers, that that serve his every need. So, you know, satya sankalpa, whatever he wants will happen. So this power emerges. So she cannot tie him up because he doesn't want to be tied up. Hmm? So this power comes to serve him. Whatever he wants, it's, it happens. So he doesn't want to be tied up. She can't tie him up. And so she's trying, but the ribbon is two inches too short. Two inches too short. So meanwhile, the ladies in the community who are complaining about Krishna's mischief, mischievousness and so forth, coming to their houses and breaking butter pots and stealing that mother you showed was in denial of, oh, he couldn't be doing that, he couldn't be doing that. They met me while they're now standing, looking over the wall and saying, see, just see, now you're seeing what your son is like. He's mischievous. And so she says, don't just stand there, throw me some rope so that I can add it onto my ribbon here and be big enough, long enough to tie him up. So they start throwing rope over. And cowherd people 
they always have rope because you need rope sometimes to shackle the back legs of the cows. They don't kick when you're milking them. So they had plenty of rope. So they throw her rope and she adds one rope to the to the ribbon and goes to tie him up. And mysteriously, it's, it's two inches too short. So she gets more rope. And every time the, she gets all the rope in the whole village, practically, the point is, and it's each time it's not only not long enough, but it's only two inches too short. Now, meanwhile, Damodar, the name for Krishna, so the name comes from the Leela. Dhamma means rope and Udara means belly. So this is a Leela in which the Godhead is trying to be bound up by his belly and, and tied and so forth. So he, she's, she makes the effort, but it's two inches too short, and he's not getting fatter all the time. Hmm? He's not getting fatter, and the rope is getting longer, and so it's quite a mysterious uh, affair. And she has to get to the bottom of it because she has to know how fat my son is. I, how, what's going on here? And meanwhile, the ladies are, are, are laughing and so forth. And, but in the con- her determination, her effort... Her, um, like, bhaktanishta, her determination in bhakti, hmm, it, it, um, it, uh, it touches the swanishta, the very, very, um, like, permanent nature of Krishna. The idea is that Krishna has a very generous nature towards his devotees. So if their service to him, their bhakti, their devotion to him is steady, then the steady nature of his generosity is tapped into. If their service and devotion is not steady, but it's unsteady, if it's here today and it's not there tomorrow, and a little bit, and so forth, then you can't tap into his consistent, generous nature. Because of the steadiness of her bhakti, the consistent nature of his generosity is tapped into, and then ultimately he is his 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 power, his shakti, to fulfill all of his desires, which was not to be tied up, is overcome by her steadiness in bhakti, and it recedes to the background, and she can tie him up when he, out of the force of her devotion, suddenly she can tie him up with the original ribbon, hmm? without all the other ropes, hmm? is the idea. So the two inches too short in the drama, if you will, in the Leela, they represent the two things that we require for catching catching God, so to speak. Hmm? That is, we have to have some some effort. Hmm? So th- th- we call that sadhana, spiritual practice, where we um, have a daily consistent uh, practice of sitting, for example, meditating, chanting, and how we sit is largely determined by how we walk. So it's they're supposed to be integrated. In other words, we don't just sit and then go out and do something completely contrary to that. The sitting informs our walking and our interaction with others and things in the world. And that walking affects our sitting. And so I once was giving a lecture here in North Carolina, the home of an ethnic Hindu from India. And... Um, he asked the question, he said, Swamiji, I think that spiritual life should be a private thing. Hmm? Private. And not something to do in public. And I said, 
Actually, the fact of the matter is, spiritual life, there should be no difference between your private and your public life. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is the idea. So, so how you walk and how you talk, that should determine how you, how you sit and how you sit, how you walk. And so the idea is, we were saying the other day, what is the need for God to have a temple, to have, you know, raise money for God? God doesn't need money. God doesn't need a temple. Hmm? That's true. But you need a temple. And you need to know that your money isn't everything that you think it is. <laughs> so if you, if you erect a temple, you can say God's everywhere. That's true. But you don't see him everywhere because you don't act like it. You come to the temple, you act like there's God's here. Okay, I'll act a certain way here. But then you go out and act otherwise. The idea is to universalize, to realize the universality of the deity. Hmm? So to, there's a beginning to that. So we, we put him in one place. And through ritual and meditation and mantra and so forth, we have a system for establishing a temple and so forth. So people come and they offer things and so on and so forth. And they, they, they donate to make the temp, build the temple or to print a book about the teaching and so on and so forth. And as they do this, then eventually, as I say, the universality of the deity becomes revealed and they start to act as if they're in the temple all the time, as if there's God is everywhere, which it, which is the fact. Hmm? And there's no difference between their private and their public public life. Hmm? Important point. So yeah, God doesn't need money, but you 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 could you don't need it either, and that's what you don't realize. Hmm? You don't need it either. Hmm? Um, so so at any rate. This effort in sadhana, spiritual practice, this is a, a thing that, uh, the sadhana, that incidentally is, uh, has been uh, somewhat, uh, I would say, somewhat uh, taken a back seat or obscured in, um, in, um, in the prominent uh, expression of religion in the Western world uh, here in America in the form of Christianity. When Thomas Merton, the Catholic theologian of the previous um, century, um, was earnestly pursuing the Catholic ideal of the beatific vision, he went to India for cross-reference uh, to witness Buddhism and Hinduism and so forth. And there he took techniques of meditation, of sadhana, to sit, to meditate and so forth, and, and he re began the incorporation of meditative techniques from the East into Christianity, which is basically the, the idea of the sadhana. There's a mechanics, if we will, to it. Mm -hmm. Even though in our tradition it's largely heart tradition, still, there are ways to conduct yourself and, and to meditate. There's a system to that and so forth. So sadhana is a, is a, is a beautiful thing. And one who is a sadhaka, principally, identified in life, they identify themselves as a spiritual practitioner. They're neither a, a perfectly developed spiritual person, a siddha, neither are they, uh, you know, without, a, without an anchor, just drifting in the world of, in the ocean of karma, with no idea of what their spiritual prospect is. So they're kind of in between species. They've un if you unplug an electric fan, what happens? 
It keeps going around, yeah, but it's slower and slower and slower. So the sadhaka's life is like an unplugged fan. Materialistic life is the fan's plugged in. Hmm? It's going round and round and round. We unplug that, right? Hmm? And so you're in it. So the idea is to perfect the sadhaka day with some effort. So we were talking about will last night. Will in relation to bhakti in the first place is the will to practice. Hmm? And the will to practice is derived from hearing the things about the Godhead, the nature of the generosity of the Godhead, the attractiveness, and so on and so forth. Um, and and the problem with with the life of material illusion and and uh, and so on and so forth. So that practice, as I say, then combined with the grace of God, these two things allow us to to capture God, to bind God. So Jashoda, here the mother, she made this great effort. And although he didn't want to be tied up, seeing her effort to tie him up based on the, on the, on the concern that he might run away, and that was just like devastating to her. These kind of, to give it some context, uh, it's said that some of these devotees in the Leela, that they notice their blinking when their eyes blink. Now, it's not something we notice when our eyes blink. And the, the idea here in the teaching is that the things we're looking at are not really beautiful, or these eyes are not sufficient to draw the full measure of the beauty of, of life. Because hmm? we don't notice the blinking. If we were looking at something that was really all beautiful, we would notice the blinking, and the blinking would be like an eon. Hmm? Just for a split second, you lost the sight of something that was is so beautiful that you would condemn the Creator who had eyes, created eyes that blink, that he knows nothing about beauty, something like that. So the thought of Mother Yasoda, of Krishna running away, as this is like overwhelming, so her effort to capture him, to tie him, is considerable, and she's in quite a big problem because she's gathering rope, the rope is being thrown there, she's adding it. She's got a huge ideas in the story. Measure of rope, and it keeps being two inches too short. But seeing her effort in bhakti, then it taps into his generous nature because of its consistent uh, nature, the effort. And so she's, then he's, he's taken by that, and he allows himself to be captured. Hmm? He, he, he gives in. Hmm? And then the original ribbon from her hair is long enough to to tie him up. And it's tied very tight, too, because there's another part of the story we have to get in the following discussion. She ties him to the mortar, and it's only a ribbon in her hair. And he moves forward, as you know, and he lodges it be- between two trees, and he, 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 he can't... The trees fall down. We're getting a little bit ahead of us, but the trees fall down and his the mortar that he's tied to by a ribbon doesn't break. Now, you can imagine if you could wedge a mortar, a wooden chair or something like this that you're tied to between two trees and pull on and the trees fell down, you'd have to be tied pretty, <laughs> pretty securely and the ribbon would not suffice. So the point is that he's not, philosophically, theologically speaking, he's not tied by a ribbon. He's tied by a ribbon or a rope of love. And, again, in the context of trying to tie him, 
while there was an effort and the rope was cons- each time two inches too short, he wasn't getting fatter and fatter. So this tells us something theologically that in Bhakti Sandarbhaji Goswami cites this um, when speaking about the all-pervasive nature of Krishna's form. It's a very abstract idea. In the Gita, Krishna says, um, I have a mystic ability to resolve all contradictions, Krishna says. Hmm? The world is pervaded by my unmanifest form. Avyakta murtina. Hmm? Now what that really means is that his form here, for example, of standing before your soda, which seems to be within time and space, is not within time and space. Hmm? And when you are within the framework of time and space and identified with it, you cannot see this form. Therefore, it's avyakta. It's unmanifest to those kinds of eyes. You have to get a different kind of eyes to see this form that is everywhere and which in which everything is contained and at the same time appears as if, in the context of the Leela, for those who have the spiritual eyes to see, as if within time and space at the same time. This is a very, very abstract idea. Hmm? Um, I gave the example the other night, we talked about this a little bit in relation to a question I think that you asked, um, to help us understand the, the principle to some extent only. I cited the... Um, I forget his name, Lovelock, Lovelock, who a um, biologist, I believe, who came up with the Gaia concept. The Gaia concept is the idea that the, the, the planet Earth is an organism unto itself. It's an organism. And so this is a shifting of perspectives because when we think of the world as an organism and I'm like a cell now, now I'm a cell, in the organism that is the planet. It's a very different way of looking at yourself than we do from the normal perspective, right? So I'm suddenly a cell. It's like, so I'm going to relate to the world very, very differently. It's a very kind of environmental, you know, spiritual perspective. But the world as an organism, hmm? the planet as an organism, and we're just part of it, something like that. So here the idea is similar but more complex theologically. Reality is a person. It's just not us. <laughs> it's, we're, part, we're part of the makeup of that, uh, of, of that person. And that said, hmm, that person can also appear to us personally at the same time. That's very mystical. By by the method, if you will, of culturing love for the person. So I've said before, it's actually a quote from Grover Grover Cleaver, Cleveland, Grover Cleveland. If you love someone, they'll tell you all their secrets. So these are theological secrets of the mystics in our tradition. And Krishna says, Pashamayogamashvaram, this is my mystic power. I, everything is inside of me, Hmm? and I am outside of everything at the same time. I can, what is contradictory in terms of what fits between our ears, hmm, 
is not contradictory for me in my realm. Hmm? From my vantage point, it's only a vantage point, and this is the limitation of reason. Reason is not a suitable vehicle for going beyond itself, and we should hope that there's something beyond reason, because if our life is to be reason-guided, it will be a proceed-with-caution life. Happy life is when we can don't have to reason and filter everything through our reason and read the labels and everything. We can just go. When we're at home, we're relaxed. So the homeland is in the heart. We need a home-knowing person for home-going. Hmm? He or she will speak in such a way that it, it seems to be articulating things that we feel that we couldn't put into words ourselves. So there's a kind of a, a resonance with it, with with that. You hit home. Hmm? You said thing. I had to... I have to think about. I don't have to think about that. I feel like that also. So, make this connection. Uh, this is this is beginning of real uh, spiritual life, and and entering into uh, the mystery of life that transcends reason. And practically speaking, it's a fact that if you give, we say in English, giving is the receiving. Hmm? So that doesn't make sense. That's not like, that's not, probably not mathematically, you know, it's not logical. If you give something, if you have 10, you give 5, you got 5. Hmm? You can't give 10 and have 20, hmm? have more, giving is the receiving. But we do experience that when we give, we grow. Hmm? We cannot hold something up and say, see, I got this. Hmm? And if we do that, we haven't given entirely. If we have expectations of getting connected to our giving, we're not fully giving. But when we fully give, we seem to expand. We become more attractive to other people. We feel more full, complete. We feel more complete by giving hmm, than by taking. And that's kind of transrational, if you will. Now, so what we want to do is, when, when sadhana, I talked about spiritual practice, we want to hone the giving, hone the giving hmm? tendency within ourselves hmm? and perfect it, finding the perfect object to repose it in and the perfect way to do so and so forth. Then we can grow, hmm? and we can grow beyond reasoning to a place where reason will not take us. It's not an unreasonable idea, but reason doesn't go there unto itself. Reason has a place there, subordinate to the experience, just like we might reason whether or not I should serve, or we could reason how I could best serve at any given time. There's a difference between the two. Hmm? So in transcendence, there's a place for reason, how to serve best at any given time. Hmm? Not whether or not to serve, then we're kind of on the platform of using our reasoning to make a decision, which we should to some extent, but reason unto itself, one reason can be supplanted by another reasoning, by another, and and so forth. So we can't land on solid ground by reason alone. Hmm? After all, reason is part of the psychic dimension of ourself, which is a subtle form of matter. So there's transrational practices. The chanting, for example, it's not unreasonable to chant, but it's not a rational exercise. It's a transrational exercise. And it can transport us to a realm where reason itself cannot take us. 
but can have a subordinate secondary role. When reason supports faith, then it becomes most beautiful. Reason alone is not capable of fully apprehending. If I reason about what the honey in the jar tastes like, and I even do experiments on it and find out all the ingredients and all that it's makeup and so, and so forth, the extent to which I know what honey is compared to someone who has just tasted it once, is, there's no comparison. You understand? If I haven't tasted it and I've analyzed it, all the physical qualities of honey, you may not know any of the physical qualities of honey, but if you've tasted it, you know what honey is in a way that the other person doesn't and it exceeds his kind of knowing. So bhakti is for for knowing through the heart in a way that transcends reason that and, and it makes reason subordinate to that knowing and assistant in that knowing. So now, in our example of Lovelock, the world being an organism, here the world is a person, again, as I said, everything's within God, and at the same time, it's possible to experience the God as, as if standing before us, as Madhya Shoda is, and she's tying him up. So, all pervasive, and in Nyaya, in logic, there's this, there's the, uh, something, a term called medium size. It's invoked in the Bhagavatam, medium size. <laughs> so he's not, not infinite, not finite. Both of which are, well, infinitesimal and finite. Okay. And then there's medium size. Okay. We can really get a grip on that. So he's appearing as if medium size. And what is it that causes that to happen? That is the love. So the power of bhakti. It means that bhakti has the power. Here the rope that's tying his belly is bhakti, hmm? love. So the power of love reposed in the god it is such that it can make, cause God to tell you all the secrets. Because if you love someone, they tell you all the secrets. And become a plaything in his hand, so to speak. So... Uh, the verse ends here that Damodaram Bhakti Bardham. So Bhakti he's bound Damodar by the ropes of love, Bhakti Vatsalya. Hmm? But an important metaphysical uh, or theological point, his form is all pervasive and medium size at the same time. In fact, I'll just give you one uh, an, an analogy that Jiva Goswami invokes in the Sandarvas to appreciate this point. In Ayurveda, that's the science of life or medical science in the ancient uh, sacred texts of the Hindus. Ayur means life, Veda means knowledge. So knowledge of life means here's the medical science, if you will. And in that science, there's three doshas. Kapa, Pitta, Vayu, right? Hmm? So Kapa is uh, sweet, Pitta is bitter, among other things, and Vayu is dry, right? Kapa, Pitta, Vayu. So... The idea in, for optimum health is to balance these doshas. So there's certain foods you can eat that will increase the pitta, certain foods that will increase the, the vayu or decrease it, and so on and so forth. But there are herbs like haritaki that one herb can balance all three of the doshas. So it has a, a kind of like an, how can it do increase the bitter, 
and decrease the sweet and increase the vi- at the same time, where typically you would need one kind of food to do one thing, one kind of food to do another thing, and so forth. This one Haritaki can balance them all at once. So he gives this example. Even materially speaking, there are things that have inconceivable powers, have powers, contradictory powers. Hmm? It can balance these contradictory um, influences of dryness, sweetness, bitterness, all at once. So what to speak then of of, of the Godhead? It's a very it's kind of important point of our theology that the Godhead has inconceivable um, abilities and powers. And, of course, that is the nature of love. Love has the power to resolve all contradictions. When you love someone, their faults become ornaments. It said, Mother named her son, her blind son, Padmalochan. Padmalochan means lotus eyes. So when you have, when you're blind, you know, your eyes don't look beautiful. That's why blind people wear sunglasses. But when she saw her son, everybody said, oh, he's blind. She said, name him Padmalochan. So how is she seeing him, right? She's seeing with loving eyes her son and so, but lotus eyes means have beautiful eyes. So, so she can only see that he has beautiful eyes. He's my son. She can't see that he's blind. So her love blinds herself to the faults, indeed turns them into ornaments. So if you love someone, someone else finds a fault in them, and you think, no, well, that's actually a good quality. <laughs> so it has that power, if you will, to resolve all, all contradictions. So if we want to go beyond the limited power of reason, right, to a realm where all contradictions, all contradictory things can exist at once without canceling one another out. The vehicle is love. This is the idea. Dhammadarastakam <laughs> kijai. So what is the time? Any question? What's your name again? Abigail. Yeah, I was trying to bring you in a little bit to the whole, whole thing. It's, it's complicated. <laughs> Yes. What was the Sanskrit term you used? Swanishta. 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 Yeah. So could you just describe that again? Well, you know, Swanishta means own nishta. So Krishna has his own enduring kind of nishta means like fixed nature, which is he's very generous. If you feel if your bhakti is is bhakti nishta, if your bhakti is fixed, determined, and unbreaking, you're going to tap into. If it's if it's if it's not unbroken, if it's not steady, you can't consistently tap into that. And in doing that, you tap into his generous nature, and and then you have the two things that you need: you have effort, and you have his kripa, his grace, his mercy. Then you can tie him up, something like that. When he sees the points, when he sees the effort in sadhana, then he, then well, he has to take that seriously. Anything else? Yes. Would electricity be an example of an energy that has contradictory resolved contradictory? It can heat and light at the same time, or heat and heat and cool at the same time, something like that. Yeah, um, I suppose you could say it has has uh, <coughs> powers to act in. In, in both ways. Mm-hmm. So kind of what we were, we were talking about is, is, is really looking 
in a common sense way at, at life and how it proceeds and and um, universal truths like giving is receiving like selfishness is unbecoming I mean everybody accepts these things and like exploring the implications of that so it's not like it sounds like some dogma but in, in one sense but there's I'm giving a technical kind of explanation but really exploring uh, kind of universally accepted uh, principles that often go without thinking about them further, or childish ideas, if you will, that we we, we grow up to think, well, you know, it's not really like that, but but it is like that. <laughs> I've said before that Einstein was asked why he was so smart. He says, because I never stopped asking questions like a child. Because parents will say, don't ask, don't ask why, just do it. Don't ask why, just do it. so why the why why meaning, purpose, value. Our lives should be preoccupied with such questions, not just how to eat, how to sleep, but why am I? What is the meaning? What is the purpose? All the how questions will be answered in the context of answering the why question, which only the humans, given the human vehicle, consciousness can ask about itself. Why? Because consciousness is a, is a value. It's a qualitative thing. Physical matter is all quantitative. Hmm? So the why questions, they're coming from us, and matter can't answer them. Because hmm? they're why questions. They're not how they're not they're qualitative questions, not quantitative questions. So we have to look beyond matter for the answers. And then so sacred texts are coming from that pain, the sadhus, saintly persons, catering to that and so forth. All right, so we stop there. Shri Damanarastakam Vijaya, Adamada Vijaya, Or Bhaktivinda Vijaya.